God is so good. We're going to be looking at um, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17. And God has just had me in David, in the life of David and who he is and, and his character. And I've just found myself there uh, in my own life that I want to emulate the character first and foremost of Jesus. Um, and that's what David is an exemplar of. He's a type of Christ. And so we can learn a lot of things about David and his character. I want to talk about identity today and where we find that. Uh, because I believe we've got an identity crisis in America. Where people don't even know who or even what they are anymore. And we keep defining new terms to identify ourselves. But I believe that you can't properly know who you are until you've identified with your creator, and that is God. Okay? So we are who God says we are, not what we think we are. The definition of grace is, I have not created myself. I have been created. So in order to find out what my identity is, I've got to go to the one in whom I've been created. I've got to identify there before I can look anywhere else. And I think what Satan does is to get us to not look there, he gives us a wrong definition of God and who God is. And that's why Jesus shows up and says, this is how God is. He's just like me. He's willing to die for you, and he's your father. But if Satan can twist that term of father, if he can twist the definition of God and convince you that you're not good, you won't go to God in order to find out who he is. You will settle for a cheap substitute or the best thing that you can find along the way. And this is why many of us go into what is coined as burnout. But you know, the Apostle Paul, who might be our best example, other than Jesus, of Christian life, if anybody had a reason or a moment to where you would think they could burn out, it'd be the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul never talks about burnout. You notice that? That maybe burnout isn't even a Christian term. That burnout is a result of running somebody else's race with somebody else's grace. Burnout would result when we don't know what race we're running and we're running aimlessly and just living our life. And so there's no grace to do what God hasn't called us to do. Because why would God give us grace for something he hadn't called us to do? So we mirror the best example we can possibly think of. And we try to compete with that example that we have in our mind. And I submit to you that that image you have in your mind is sometimes a false image. 
And so it's a modern day idolatry to where I've got to live up to the picture that I have in my mind, which might not even be the picture that God has set forth for me in my life. So if we're running the race with God's grace, we can do it at a great pace. Come on now, I just hit a little rhyme right there. Somebody should have said hallelujah right there. Come on. That was good. Yeah, it was. So, what is your race? What have you been created for? And most importantly, who are you? Who are you? Now, here's the difference. Josh, come up here and help me a little bit. Get up on this stage, Josh. Now, you ain't getting this microphone, okay? So, just <laughs> let's just settle that, okay? Now, when we're running a race, but we don't know what race we're running, all we have to do, all we have is somebody else's performance that we have to try to imitate. So go ahead, take off. No, 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 not like the cops are chasing you. I'm talking about like a little jaw. I'm talking about, hey, whoa, 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 no, that's too much. That's too much. This is for an exa- I mean, really slow, cause, but fast forward it in your mind, okay? All right, go. So as you see, See, I've got to watch him. So I don't know where I'm going. And what happens if he slows down or stumbles? Now I've lost my identity because I'm watching somebody else's race and trying to compare myself. See what I'm saying? I'm not done with you. Get over here. So go on. So now also what's going on if I'm watching somebody else's race, it's now a competition. It's not cooperative. So I'm no longer in the body of Christ. I'm now trying to do, outdo another part of the body and try to get glory that is not my own. Okay? So this is the body of Christ currently in this city. Ready? What are you doing to do this? Or how are you doing to do this? And we're looking to this, and nobody's hit their knees and said, God, what have you defined us as? And what have you called us to do? And that's why none of us are at home in our own skin because we're all looking at everybody else and what they're doing instead of doing what God has called us to do. Now, here's what happens when we begin to get our identity from God and begin to find out what is our strategic place in this race. Mike, where are you? Get up here, buddy. Pat, get up here. Now, here's what happens. Let's space out here. I'm going to get first. Mike, you be second because you're the slowest person in the relay race. Josh, third. Pat, you're going to be the anchor man. Okay, you never did track, have you? So you need to get on the far other side. <laughs> Keep going. Pass Josh. This is a relay. Relay race. Keep going, buddy. You got to get out there. Right there, right there. All right, Mike, get up here. Now, when we're running the race that we're supposed to run, it's now turned into a relay, and it's cooperative. So that I have my baton. Well, we're just going to have to pretend today I got my baton so I'm running my leg of the race but it's in cooperation with the next brother so he can run his leg of the race where then Josh can run his leg of the race and Pat can bring it on home for the victory so when we know who we are suddenly we know our part in the body But if I'm trying to be the eyes when God's called me to be the liver, 
Who's going to filter out the toxins that need to be filtered out in the church? No, everybody's trying to be eyeballs and heads. But I got news for you. There's one head, and the head is in the third heaven. His name is Jesus. And we're all a body part of Jesus here on this earth. Thank you guys so much. Amen. Yeah, give these guys a hand clap. So God is pulling us out of imitation. He's pulling us out of competition. And he's saying, stay in your lane. Do what I've called you to do and be content in that race that I've set before you. So what has God called me to do? Who am I? Have you ever asked that question? I know I have many times. Because see, here's what happened when we fell in the garden. Yes, we disobeyed God when we fell in the garden, but here's what we also did. We obeyed Satan. Which is the more tragic part than disobeying God is we obeyed Satan. In other words, what we obey has become our master. So when we obeyed Satan, we handed over the divine destiny and authority that God had given man to rule and reign on the earth, and we handed it over to him. That's why when Jesus is in the, in, in, in the wilderness in the days of temptation, Satan comes to me and says, uh, I can hand to you this kingdom that had been handed to me. So who handed him the kingdom of the earth? Sounds like Adam did. So we have this reality here of handing over our authority and destiny over to Satan that originally was supposed to come from God. And what happens when we obey something that is beneath us? Come on now. So see, we exalt Satan like he's some big... He's beneath us. He's beneath us. He's beneath us. That's what made him so upset when you got created. He's like, why are you giving him all the power and authority? I'm the most beautiful. So when we obey something that's beneath us, we will always trend in our destiny to choose something that is less than what God had called us to live towards. So when we handed that over to Satan, we begin to identify with what we thought we were and not with what God or who God said we were. Okay, so it's why when God's looking for Adam in the garden and says, where are you? Um, in the bushes. <laughs> Got my fruit of the looms on. <laughs> why? Because I'm naked. God says, who told you you were naked? In other words, why are you getting your identity from something that is beneath you when I'm the one that gives you identity and tells you who you actually are? God's question isn't first off of, oh, you bad, terrible person. It's like, where are you getting your info from? And when we turn from God and we serve lesser things, Satan and sin, we find ourselves lost without an identity, not knowing what to do, who we are. What our calling is. God doesn't want us to identify outside of Him. See, culture tries to get us to redefine ourselves. And not all of this is bad, right? Because it'd be weird if we all come in here wearing bell bottoms and, you know, polyester shirts and, and you know, button down to here with like a gold chain and stuff. Like, like that would be kind of weird. So, but, but trends change. Uh, but God never changes. 
He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. So while I can meet trends or I can uh, change the way I dress, inwardly I've got to know who I am and not let outwardly things begin to define my life. And I can be honest with you guys, as I spent a great part of my life imitating other people. Right? Imitating other people. I remember coming into the, uh, my early teens and I was trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to be. And so we all gravitate towards different examples, but, but, but I was gravitating towards this or gravitating towards that and beginning to de define who I was going to be as a person. Now, mainly the things that were informing those decisions was not God or what, who God had called me to be. I don't even know that when I was in church, nobody even talked about identity and who we were in God. We were just told, uh, don't sin and don't watch rated R movies. But then the passion of the Christ come out and I thought, well, can I watch it or not? Get more confused. Um, so you begin to imitate things that you like or that you're drawn to. So this happens and went on into uh, when I got saved. Because when I got saved, uh, who am I going to be? What is my part in this thing to play? And so I begin to watch other ministers and try to imitate them. And I went to a conference and I heard T.D. Jakes preach. And I thought, man, I can never preach that good. My goodness. And then I would find this person or that person, and, and my whole ministry would be an imitation of somebody else. Or in other words, an echo of what somebody else was saying. But do you notice when, John, when uh, God called John the Baptist, he said, I want you to be a voice who's crying out in the wilderness. See, God doesn't want you to be an echo. God's calling you to be a voice. And some of us have not got beyond echoes. So it sounds false. It sounds thin. It sounds like a tinkling cymbal or a noisy gong because it's the imitation of someone else that we've wrapped up as if it's our own and what God has called us to be out of our fear of inadequacy or fear of God actually moving in our life. And so we just begin to imitate everything we see around us instead of being vulnerable with God and saying, God, I'm not perfect. God, I got my issues, but will you meet me right here and I'll be who you called me to be. Praise God. Weird time of year. I got a sweater on and I wish I had a t-shirt now. This morning I was shivering. Come on Arkansas, get with it. See if there are two of us, one of us is unnecessary. If there's two of us, one of us is unnecessary. See, God has called us to be who we are. And God isn't looking down and saying, man, I wish there were more people like Billy Graham. God is saying, I wish so-and-so would just be so-and-so so that they could fill in the perfect gap. Right? So that we could fill in the perfect spot, the missing puzzle piece. So you spent my time uh, imitating. And I'd been saved in ministry for some time. 
And what you find is the most anointed person you know, but that ends up being your opinion of who the most anointed person you know is anyway. Whereas other people don't share the same opinion of who the most anointed person you know is. And so it's kind of a weird, weird judge. But I found mine. Mine was David Wilkerson. So I preached his sermons. <laughs> I tried to act like him. He wore a big old Windsor knot, so I had a big old Windsor knot. And I thought I was cool. I mean, it's funny now, but I'm like, man, I'm David Jr. And I found myself just in this cycle of imitation. But then something begins to happen when you walk that thing out is you begin to find out, I can't wear this thing that somebody else is called to wear. And you begin to go into an identity crisis. So I begin to start the journey of, God, who have you called me to be? Who have you called me to? What, who am I? Have you ever hit that place in your life? Where you've been going on a long time, working jobs or doing life, and then you wake up and you're like 40 or 50, and you're like, who am I? It's an identity crisis. It's a middle-aged crazy thing. That's why you see people at that stage of their life leave their family, buy a convertible, and you're just like, whoa, what happened? They're trying to find out who they were and felt that they had been cheated in that and went on another pursuit to try to find it. It's a weird, really weird place to be. So I'd been in church and been saved. But as I was in church and in saved, the pastor that I worked for was a big dreamer. It was a big ministry with lots of ideas that never stopped. And so I was so busy serving under somebody else's dream and so preoccupied with somebody else's dream that I didn't notice I'd wasted years fulfilling somebody else's dream and didn't know who I was. So God began to deal with me. So I need you to step down and go on a discovery to figure out who I've called you to be. I said, all right, God, as soon as you open a door, I'm going for it. The door never opens. But the voice never quit telling me that. I said, okay. So I stepped down. Went on a nine-month itinerant ministry journey asking myself, who in the world am I? And God began to put the puzzle pieces in place during that season of brokenness and loneliness and wandering and, and wandering and, and all these different things, God began to put it together. But you know when the pieces really started coming together is when I found out God is my Father. That's when everything came together. I didn't realize it, but I had built up years of stuff that was undoing the goodness of God and being able to receive that God is really that good. Because what I was doing and what we tend to do is, is we project who we think God is 
based on our experiences and hurt and everything else, and we reject, we project that onto God and say, this is God. But the reality is it's an image that we've made unto our own uh, self and unto our own worship, and it's not actually who God is. And so unless we're brave enough to go into the place of identity crisis and say, you know what? I don't know who I am, God. Build it up from the ground up. Unless we're willing to do that, we tend to just live out a life that's been heaped over us with some religions and tra traditions and some other things, and we never step into what is our actual voice and our actual calling and who God's called us to be. So God began to put the pieces together that He's my Father and that He loves me. And it wasn't that God said, here's what I've called you to do. Blah, 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 blah. You know what God did? He revealed his love for me. And that freed me to be okay with myself. And that freed me to be who he'd called me to be. That this is how God sets us up into our calling. He does it through relationship. Not through instruction. And we want God, give me the A, B, C, D, E, F, and G so I can finish this race. And God's like, nope, I just want to love on you. And as I love on you and free your heart up, you'll begin to get comfortable with who you are and begin to step out into the natural callings and giftings that God has given you to walk out. That's why God says that I am the vine and you are the abide in me and you'll produce much fruit. So that sounds weird. It's not a, a, give me a formula, God, that I can replicate. It's like, nope, abide in me. Come on, God, give me more. I, I need more. I need structure. I need to figure out how I can build this. Thing. God's like, nope, abide in me. And through the natural abiding of relationship, fruit begins to come forth. And you can't take credit for it because it wasn't your formula. It wasn't your structure. It wasn't your thing. It was just the fact that you pressed into Jesus, connected to the source, and then he produced what he wanted to produce through you. Yeah, amen. <laughs> Praise God. Well, that's my introduction. I better move on. See, the root of this feeling of inadequacy is an unhealthy self, an unlovingness of self-love. See, if I think something's wrong with me, fundamentally, and I'm not talking about sin issues, I'm not talking about that stuff, you need to deal with them things. I'm talking about fundamentally as a person, if I think something is wrong with me, I will not identify with God. I'll identify with my sin nature and say, this is who I am. See, if I walk in shame, then I will become shame. And that's the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt means I've done something wrong, which is okay. Shame is I am something wrong, which is not okay. And so we begin to identify with the wrong part of our nature, not the nature of being born again or being created into a new creation of Christ, but we begin to associate with a fallen sin nature and then say, well, this is just who I am. 
and we'll cover it up however we can to make us feel better about it. But we've got to have a healthy balance of self-love. Now, this isn't PhD gobbledygook or all this kind of stuff because there's a, a major unhealthy self-love that, that some people can have, a selfishness. But this kind of love is like what Jesus said. Love your neighbor as... For some of us, that would be easy because we hate ourselves so much that of course we're loving our neighbor as ourselves because we don't really like ourselves all that much. So that becomes an easy commandment to follow when I don't love myself. When I don't see myself as made in the image of God. See, this fills miserably when I don't like myself. When the mistakes of our past or what I do define me, I begin to adopt a false identity based on things I've done right or done wrong. And when that's the case, and I'm judging my life based on what I've done right or what I've done wrong, then where am, gonna, am I going to find affirmation? I'm going to find affirmation in other people who say that what I've done is right or say that what I do is wrong. So then I begin to put on a performance where I begin to perform to get the adulation or the response from people that I want to get from them. So some people will operate in such a dark place because they want people to hate them as much as they hate themselves. They feed off someone saying, you are wrong and you are messed up. And it feeds the inner hatred that they have for themselves and affirms what they already think about themselves. Then you have another variety that wants to get the pat on the back. And so they perform for the person that will give them the adulation, that will give them the congratulation, the pat on the back, the title, the whatever it might be. And so then this person enters into a performance. But the problem with an actor is, is they're not really who they say they are. They're playing a part. So from the opinion of others, from the results of my abilities, I begin to define who I actually am. And we can't define ourselves from our own eyes. That's why the identity crisis is the greatest mercy of God. Because God is willing for us to have a crisis to find out who He really is so that we would find out who we really are than He had be prop up the performance or the false image we're showing everybody and allow that to go on throughout eternity. And then we would stand before God and God would say, depart from me, I never really knew you. Knew there is the intimate word of conception of experience. It's when the Bible says that so-and-so knew her and he knew her. It would mean that a full consummation, a coming into relationship and a fullness of a knowing. Have you allowed God to, to come that near? Because I'm here today comfortable in my own skin. There's not one person I'm imitating today. And until you get to that place, people will put a label on you and tell you who you ought to be and what you should be. And if you don't know, they'll talk you out of it. Anything I can talk you out of, I can talk you into. Come on now. Anything I can talk you into, 
I can talk you out of. But when God begins to solidify the identity of who we are, when he begins to solidify what we are and, and what he shaped and fashioned us to be, we can begin to step into the glory of God. Because the authenticity of who you actually are will be the most effective place of ministry or the most effective place that you could possibly be in your life. So you've got to get in, in, at home in here. You've got to deal with some things. Because we're only shaped and fashioned in God's presence. And some of us, myself included, have been guilty of just being chameleons. Have you ever seen a chameleon, man? They can blend in anywhere. It's like, oh, I got to preach. Preacher. <laughs> Hope I look the part. <laughs> right? That everything we do becomes an imitation of someone else and it quits being true to us and our experience and who God has called us to be. See, a chameleon can blend in anywhere. He can blend in with the world. Blend in up here, blend in behind a guitar, behind some drums, behind a chameleon can hide because they know how to perform. Chameleon. Oh, wow, they look the part. But then what does the Bible say about God? God looks on the heart. God looks on the heart. He's got a way of seeing what's really there. And this is where it gets really scary. To let go of what we were to step into the unknown of what we might become in God. Because sometimes the judgment of God looks a lot like the grace of God. That's why in the upper room they're crying out for the baptism of fire. But yet that same judgment of fire will be what people will be thrown into at the last day of judgment. See, one is saying, God, judge me. And the other one's saying, God, you can't judge me. It's why the cross is the greatest example of God's love for mankind. But at the same time, it's the judgment upon mankind in the flesh for our sin and everything else. See, God's judgment looks a lot like God's grace. And God's grace looks a lot like His judgment. So it can be scary because there's sometimes I'm like, God, are you judging me? Or are you giving me grace here? And God's like, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Both. Cool. So let's dive right in here to David. First Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem for 40 days 
the Philistine, Goliath, came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So we have David here. If you notice, he had been anointed king by Samuel. And then through some means, he had been uh, Saul's armor bearer, placed as an aide to King Saul. But it says here in our text that he is going to his father's sheep and doing the shepherd stuff and going back and forth. And then when Saul needs him, he's going to do the Saul stuff. Because only David has the remedy to play the special tune that relieves Saul of his demonic activity and begin to have a moment of clarity where that thing that was demonizing Saul, King Saul, would lift. So David is content to be in the king's house, but he's also content to be in the shepherd, be a shepherd with the sheep. That when he's a shepherd to the sheep, he's not wishing he could be at the place that he's actually anointed to be in. He's going to be the same here as he is the same here. And I think what the devil wants to try to get us to do to think is, when I step into my place of, of whatever God's called me to do, then I'll finally be happy. What we find is, is that if we're not happy here, when we get the thing that we're, God's called us to do, we won't be happy there. Because at the end of the day, you are made for God, and He's your source, and He's the only thing that can make you happy and complete. So if you're not doing your best here with the sheep, there's no way you're going to go in there to the king's court and play the harp and have the demons flee. You've got to be just as content here as you are there. And that's David. Anointed king, but he's an errand boy. He's not even in the fight. He's the king. But he's not concerned himself with that. Why? Because he was shaped in the pasture alone with God. See, he was shaped here. He had moments with God here. This is where he heard the voice of God. So it wasn't anything to go back to the sheep when God called him to go back to the sheep or when the king said go back to the sheep, it wasn't anything because he had been shaped there. That's where he had heard God's voice. And because he had allowed himself to be shaped by the voice of God and with God, look what begins to happen here of how his opinion is different from everyone else. Verse 14, uh, 17. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain and ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses hmm, to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Verse 19, now Saul when, and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went. And Jesse had commanded him. 
And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath, by name, came up out of the ranks and the Philistines of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Wow. And all the men of Israel, verse 24, when they saw the man fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So here's the king willing to give a reward for slaying Goliath. And an ancient king had a stock in this because if he was enabled him to, to be rich and then give him a daughter, then suddenly he's into the king's family, united with him in allegiance where he couldn't rise above that king and take his seat on the throne. So this would have been Saul's attempt to unify himself to a giant killer, even though he was too afraid himself to face the giant. Verse 26, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistines and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So it shall be done to the man who kills him. So do you notice that there is this opinion of other people saying, what are you doing getting involved with this? You're the guy supposed to be being the errand boy and bringing us goods. And yet the one who has been out in the sheep hasn't experienced any war is the one who is saying, why are we letting this guy get away with this? Why aren't we jumping into battle and taking this guy on? See, David had been shaped in the pasture land hearing God's voice. He didn't have the ability for somebody else to put their fingerprints on him and tell him what he ought to be and who he ought to be. He had been listening to the voice of God and not the voice of culture that would say, you can't face that giant. That giant is too big. There's no way you can overcome that devil. It's too big for you. You are that thing. You need to give up and stay in your place. But David said, no, I've heard the voice of God in my life. I know God has called me for great things and I've been alone with him and he loves me and I know who I am and I'm called to be a giant killer. See, when God begins to speak to you things, he'll speak to you supernatural things. Things that are outside of your power and your ability. Why? So that he could use you to get the glory that only he can get. Because people ought to see your life and say, only God could work something like that out. Verse 28, and Eliab's eldest brother, when he heard him, spoke to the men. Eliab's anger was kindled against David. So why have you come down and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? So he begins to dog where he come from. 
And I know your presumption with the evil in your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. See, what Eliab was noticing was something that was actually in his own heart. If you want to know what's in your own heart, look what you say about other people. Because what you say about other people will be the exact issue that you've not been willing to let God deal with you. That's why you can see it so easy in other people. Because you've been regurgitating the same info that you ought to be dealing with. Okay, let's move on. Never going to get out of here. We don't come on. Verse 29, and David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Continued ridicule in the face of deliverance. Because it looked weird. Who had seen a teen with some cheese show up and beat a Goliath? It's weird. It's abnormal. The errand boy with some cheese is going to defeat Goliath. And what's what begins to happen as he begins to speak these words? Verse 31, Then the words of David spoke were heard, and they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him, and David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistines. See, David didn't just talk the talk. David was the words that he was speaking so he could walk the walk and talk the talk. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, see, see some of us, we're, we're so worried about heritage or something from the past that we can grab onto that sometimes we miss out on what God can do in somebody that's got no lineage. Matter of fact, when the Bible talks about King Melchizedek, it says that they didn't even know his father or his mother. He had no earthly lineage, but yet he was the king of righteousness that Abraham paid tithes to. See that we have a lineage that's supernatural when we're in God. That's why the Bible says that you've become a new creation, is you've been pulled out of flesh and blood and parents' uh, DNA and cycles of sin, and you've been brought into a new reality that is unique and its own called the sons and daughters of God. For you're but a youth, and he's been a war since his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. See, David had victories that nobody else knew about because they were in a secret place. See, you won't step into the public arena of what God's called you to do if you don't have any private victories in your own prayer closet. Come on now. Come on now. That David could go back to private victories that he had that nobody saw and could confidently step into the place that God had him because he already knew what he could do because he had already experienced it in the private place with God. So now when the public sphere comes to be come about, you could step right into it because he had already had the private victories of a lion and of a bear. 
Verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. He says, that thing that you're scared of, no, it's beneath me. It's in the animal realm, and God has called me to rule and reign over the animal realm, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the beasts of the earth. So I'm in a place of dominion over this thing because it refuses to give glory to God. And David said, the Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. And he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Now watch what happens here. Then Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. (laughs) So David put them off. See, he knew he was shaped in the pasture talking to God and sheep. And if he puts on this armor, that armor might get credit of something that God was supposed to get glory of in the secret place when he had been shaped. Uh, This is why David knew who he was because anybody would be honored to have the king's army except some, or king's armor, except for the person who already knew who he was in God. Then it becomes ill-fitting. And I have a sneaking suspicion that Saul's objective was to make him wear his armor so that the people would think it was Saul that won the victory and went out into battle. See, somebody's always wanting to take the glory for something that God's wanting to do in you when they were too afraid to endure what they had to endure to step into the thing that God was wanting them to step into. So he says, here, take this armor. Take this armor. See, God just wants you to be you. He wants you to be you. See, we live in a culture that counts. We live in a culture that says, one, two, three. Oh, this person must be doing good because look at this. I can count lots of things. David could count two things before he faced the giant. A lion and a bear. He would be considered not a success. He was watching animals and had killed animals. And God says, that's enough. I've seen enough. He can be king. Because if he takes that kind of care of things when nobody's watching, I can trust him when every eye is laid upon him. So we live in a culture that counts. And there's times I look out in this church, I'm guilty of it, and I see some empty chairs I think, why is that chair empty? And there's sometimes that the empty chairs speak louder to me than the people that are in the chairs. And I want you to know that's unholy. Because I should be more concerned with the souls in the chairs than I am the empty spots that are there. See, we live in a culture that counts, and they couldn't count David. 
so they didn't entrust him. Couldn't count David. They couldn't count all his awards or what he had done. But David didn't need them to count and have their validation. He'd already had the validation of God. See, when I'm counting, I'm looking at someone else and I'm not looking at God. See, when I'm counting, I'm dependent on somebody else to make me happy. And I'm not looking at God and allowing God to do what He wants to do in my life. See, the reality is we're not to count, but we're to step into the responsibility God has given us to take care of. And He'll give more when it's time. But if I've been removed from the vine, all those grapes are going to wither up and die anyway. So my job and your job is to abide. How do I do that? I don't know. It's a relationship. (laughs) You have to receive it, walk in it, nurture it, love it, and let it develop how a relationship develops. If I'm trying to force a relationship, how good do those work? You let it unfold. And as you get closer, you begin to share more secrets. You begin to share more things. And as God begins to share more with you, you begin to love yourself more because you begin to see how much He actually loves you. Verse 40, Then He took His staff in His hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in His shepherd's pouch. And His sling was in His hand. And He approached the Philistine. See, he showed up with the one who brought him. You ever know that guy to dance that would work the dance floor and then go home with somebody else that he went with? That guy's sorry, okay? You go home with the one that brought you. Come on now. And so David said, I know who got me here. It was God's voice and the Holy Spirit. It was this sling and some stones. And so I'm staying with what got me here. Staying with what got me here. I don't need the king's tunic. I don't need the king's armor. I can be dressed the way I'm dressed. I can be who I am. David's refusal would have reflected his recognition that without being trained on how to use armor and weapons, his advantage would have become nil and would have become a detriment. God's wanting to raise up some folks that don't have a lot of training, but that have been shaped in the pasture alone with God who know how to hear God's voice. That's what God's looking for. You know, my daughter started this thing where, man, when your kids start school, they they just turn into bad people. I don't know what's up with that. I don't know if dropping a kid off for eight hours with a bunch of folks that don't know nothing about the Lord, I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I'm still working it out. (sighs) My daughter come home and I went to take her. she She gets the phone and starts taking pictures now. So we're watching Nat Geo 
National Geographic. See, I'm cool. I know the code to Nat Geo. So. And he got the, uh, so here comes this close-up of an eagle, bald eagle. We're watching these nature shows, and she takes the picture. Oh, I got it. So I'm like, what are you trying to be, a photographer who takes pictures of the TV of wildlife? Like, what have we become in America? We're taking pictures of wildlife on television, whatever. But then I go to take a picture of her, and you know what she does? Peace sign. I didn't even take that picture. I put it down. I said, what in the world? You're four years old. Who taught you something weird and weird, crazy like that? See, the Father doesn't like it when we imitate other things other than what the Father's heart has put on the inside of us. Now, if you do that, I don't care, okay? So that's just an illustration here. I want my daughter to be shaped with what I, my heart feels and beats for her. Not what other people's opinions and what culture would say that she's got to become. I just remember thinking, I didn't teach you that. And I think a lot of times we're imitating things. And God's saying, I didn't teach you that. I didn't tell you that. Somebody put that on you. Somebody tried to get you to wear their armor and you weren't ready and it wasn't yours to wear. I needed to shape you in the secret place a little bit longer, but you left me there. And I never got to tell you what I really wanted to tell you. I never got to tell you what I needed. I wasn't finished talking and you left. You were dropped off in the care of another. And you never got to hear the Father's voice. Let me tell you what the Father's voice is over you if you're in Jesus. It's this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And from that place you can do anything that God has called you to do. So Jesus flips the script on loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's passe. Forget about that. Here's how I want you to begin to love others and to find yourself. John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. No more loving your neighbor as yourself because you might hate yourself. You love other people the way Jesus is revealing His love for you. Verse 35, By all this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Come on now. Jesus has just given us a new commandment. He's taken the pressure off. Saying, I can't love my neighbor. I hate myself. He says, that's okay. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm asking you to love people the way I'm loving you right now. <laughs> In other words, I can love because I've first been loved. That love has to be initiated by one of the parties. You ever get in a fight with your wife and you're saying, who's going to love first? 
Come on now. I think I'm the one that always loves first, by the way. Just so. But she says it's because I'm always wrong, so I don't know. But that's the nature of the relationship. Somebody's got to love first. And God said, I've already stripped myself naked on the cross and bled and died for you. What in the world are you waiting for? What more do I have to do? Snuck the anointing oil over over here. It must have been the flesh. See, the only way we can love ourselves is to find out how God loves us. And through those eyes, we begin to see ourselves. And it's not some weird thing of where our chest is poked out and we're so prideful. No, it's a humble love because we know it's by the grace of God and we know that it's not deserved, that it's just who God is. And, and so it frees us up to love other people. So Jesus gives us this new commandment, which it's not a commandment, it's a standard of empowerment. That whenever Jesus says something, He'll never tell you anything to do that He's not prepared to give you the power and the grace to accomplish. So it's not even commandments anymore. It's just a surrendering obedience that says, okay, God, if you said you'd give the power, I'll do it. Whew. Man, I think I'm preached out. Let's stand to our feet.